everyone, this is a live episode of my podcast McCool and the Gang and we're joined today with Steve Levine who is a Grammy Award winning producer and composer. So there you go, very exciting indeed. Thank you. <laughs> How are you doing? How's lockdown been? I've not seen you since, I don't think. Well, it's been good and terrible. In the very, very beginning it was... Um, obviously strange but because this is my own studio obviously I could come in and do the odd bit and piece and I was in the middle actually of uh, a sample library so that was actually perfect timing because it meant that I could spend the enormous amount of time that it takes on on fine editing the samples so I spent most of the beginning of lockdown fine-tuning the sample library which is now up at uh, Native Instruments and uh, that's done really well and then just before lockdown, I did an EP with the Hush Tones and we just got it out just as lockdown happened. And then during lockdown, we did um, Zoom style rehearsals and songwriting, which worked quite well. And not only did I do it with them, but some of the other people that I work with. It's interesting how everyone has had to get very technology savvy. Um, it's been a, been an, an exercise for all of us, you know. Yeah, it's been been crazy for me, you know, because I wanted to plug everything in and then figuring out how to do it on Instagram. Oh, it was just like, how <laughs> do people do this? Did you stay productive then throughout? Yes, very productive. And, and most of my various uh, business meetings have all been conducted with Zoom. And I have to say, I in some cases I almost prefer it so that some of those things I probably won't go back to doing the old way I think that the new way is better I think when it comes to a band there's nothing better than all being in the same room at the same time you can't beat that yeah you can do you can do the homework via zoom and that's turned out to actually be incredibly productive because um, each person working separately has focused on the bit that, that's their concern and then we've kind of joined them all up so I'd say that's pretty good um, but in the recording studio, you need to have everyone together. Yeah, it's for, it's for jamming as well. And like songwriting, I've done a few sessions online and that's been really good. But for rehearsing and recording, if mm. you need everyone there. You do. You know, at the moment, until technology improves even more so, being in the same room at the same time is the only way to go. Yeah, for sure. Let, let's Fingers crossed. Yeah. That it happens soon. <laughs> um, so... Going back to um, the beginning, I guess, you've worked with the likes of the Beach Boys, Boy George, um, The Clash and Motorhead, and you also produced and presented the BBC Radio 2 show The Record Producers, which deconstructs iconic records and how they were created. Um, so that's a bit of background on you. Do you. Is there anything you would like to add to that? No, I'm just I'm very proud of my uh, radio things. And in fact, if I move the camera around, you can see our... Radio awards there. Look at that at the top. Those, uh, you know, we got, yeah. got some awards for them. They were very well received, so I was very proud to do them. And um, for me as a producer, it, it was great because it, you know, I was able to interview my heroes um, and getting access to some of the the tapes really showed. The craft, and what was interesting was the craft during the 60s, the 70s and the 80s and how the craft changed. And when you looked at some of the recordings and the different skill sets that people had, it was really quite incredible. It really was. You know, each each generation gets used to the technology that they, they have at their disposal. And I think that if you compare, you know, a Beatles multitrack, as I was lucky to do, with something that was recorded 20 years later, there isn't much difference other than 
the number of tracks that the focus is exactly the same all all artists once they got in the studio all behave the same way but it's interesting how technology at each juncture enhances the performance so that's kind of what we tried to do in the um in the show and it was very well received it's still ongoing and uh, onwards and upwards yes awesome could you tell us why you chose music as a career and in particular the kind of sonic side of it and the production of records um i when i sort of had the choice of which school to go to i went to a technical school um and that school kind of specialized in in those days for the uh, older generation you used to do your sort of exams and then you'd have a choice between a grammar school or whatever it, it was and um Fortunately, I got good results. So I went to this Canterbury Technical High School for boys. But in those days, they separated physics, uh, chemistry, biology, and also you could do a separate electronics course. And I was absolutely fascinated. And I was fascinated actually from an early age with regard to the way that records sounded because whilst I didn't understand it when I was growing up, I really noticed the difference between, say, a reggae record, a Beatles record and a Motown record. They all sounded really, really different. And, and that was the thing that fascinated me. So when I was at school, we were encouraged with electronics. And in those days, electronics were really in its kind of infancy and so consequently you're able to build things really really easily so in the school era i was very much kind of uh charged with doing the sound for the school productions and the bands and all that kind of thing and so i learnt very quickly about how the sound of the band and bearing in mind this is the mid 70s and so Glam Rock and all those, T-Rex, David Bowie, those are the records that were played on the radio. And you heard a live band in those days and they sounded absolutely nothing like the record. Yeah. Uh, whereas at least today bands can sound close to the record. And so I thought, why is it so bad? Why does live sound sound so terrible? <laughs> Obviously, once I then got the job in a studio, I realised the difference. And particularly given those 70s records, the drums you know, often had loads of dampening on them and, and lots of close mic work. And so I realised very quickly how you created particular sounds. And then it coincided with the punk generation and they wanted to record you know, very DIY. And so that's how I got to work with The Clash and uh, The Jags and um, The Vibrators and all those kind of bands. And I learnt my craft as they learnt their craft because we were all kind of 17 at that point and so young and enthusiastic. And I think punk really did change the music industry because it was a new way of recording, a very fresh way of recording. Uh, it was very exciting as well. And so you kind of get swept along with it. And then very soon I started getting clients who wanted to use me because I was getting a particular sound. Um, people forget, but if you look at the timeline of punk, it's a really interesting period, particularly in England. You've got punk, you've got disco, and you've got the the sort of electronic world of mm. the Kraftworks and, and Giorgio Moroder and those kind of acts. Look at records and look at the timeline and look at the dates of things. People forget, you know... It all um, Summer kind of was it, yeah. yeah, and so you had the... So for me, you had three parallel worlds. You had the guitar bands, yeah. you had the synthesizer bands, and then you had disco, which was kind of in between. And so as a 
engineer working on those different genres was a fantastic education in terms of sound because yeah. they're all really different. Yeah. You know, the difference between a, you know, a, a Rickenbacker bass on a punk record versus a jazz bass playing on a disco record versus a programmed mini moo going, you know, whatever. It's great education. Yeah. It really is. And of course, look at today, you know, I'm surrounded by the same kind of stuff. Gadgets. Nothing changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah nothing changes. It just gets um, <laughs> a little bit easier, a little bit more cost effective, but the principles yeah. are exactly the same. So considering that there was a lot going on um, kind of genre wise around the time that you first kind of got into production and started producing bands, what kind of draws you to how you enjoy music or how you enjoy creating a record because some people are, enjoy music in di- obviously different ways like some people are uh, interested in sounds and textures and then other people like myself are very emotionally connected like lyrics people and songs people so how do you kind of respond to music is it is it more about uh, creating the kind of backdrop to the song or is it bringing the song out or is it different every time it's different every time, but generally speaking, most bands and most artists have a vision as to how they want the record. And in most cases, they're influenced by other things. And sometimes it can be the really the, a, a, a tiny, tiny detail on someone else's record, a snare drum or a bass sound or something. And that can be the inspiration for a whole range mm. of songwriting. So, so it could sometimes be that. So as a producer, you've got to decipher what the hell that is. <laughs> but sometimes you can be drawn by things that are not there like for example you know when I first met you and first heard you your voice sounded better than anyone else in if you remember back to that Yamaha competition everyone had the same PA setup so there was no difference it was a completely level playing field you sounded better by quite a margin and that was the first thing I thought wow your voice sounds really really good but that's I couldn't but at that point I couldn't hear any lyrics I couldn't hear any song construction but it was the start of of that and then you start to think oh that's interesting and then as you well know you're a pretty damn good guitarist and that's unusual in the singer-songwriter or the female singer-songwriter world so then you've got two things you've got a great sounding voice and you've got tools of the trade and you know, look at the curve of your playing and sound. It developed as both pedals. Once you got that mm. white guitar thing, you know, suddenly the sound started to develop yeah. and the songwriting develops along with it. So yeah. you're drawn by all those things. So that's an emotional um, connection with the sound of the voice, an emotional yeah. connection with the sound of the record, which I think, as you say, is definitely something that affects everybody. Even you know, if you go back to disco records, the beat of a disco record affects people in a certain way, just as the, the you know a, a beautiful guitar sound mm. that really is rich and deep that affects people in a certain way and then if you can tell a story that's that's the key you know um and that's more true i guess in the indie section you know certainly in the disco world telling a story is probably not quite the same thing but a good lyric is really really important but it it starts with a good song but then it's got to be presented really well and that's where a good song with a good production Mm. is the sort of joining point of the two things so it's interesting because the things you've described um like key elements of a narcissist like for example if they've got a a really interesting voice or if they've got something else about them that makes them interesting it's more like all of those things give the mood yeah and and as you said having a good sound doesn't necessarily mean i mean this is an argument that i face all the time 
you know, you don't have to be a great singer to have a good voice. And yeah, sometimes yeah, great singers don't necessarily have great voices. And then sometimes within a group, when a group blends, that can be just a magic, yeah. magic thing. And sometimes it doesn't work. And, you know, you see a band and you go, oh, I'm not sure that that works. Even though they think it works, it doesn't. And then sometimes you can be incredibly lucky and you get random individuals whose voices blend really yeah. really well of, of course of course you know the cases like the beach boys and the Bee Gees and those things you know they yeah, obviously... fa- fa- yeah i mean that yeah yeah that always makes a huge difference yeah. but in the case of bands when you do get a blend that works really really well sometimes they're just magical combinations yeah. and so you can create something that's really good and again with musicianship you know the technology that's available now allows a generation of people who may not necessarily be the most amazing musicians in the world but they may have some great ideas and i'm all for that i think ideas are everything yeah as we say all the gear and no idea <laughs> i remember working on the because you produced my, my first album um and i remember working on that and sometimes it it would just be about finding kind of one sound or like one effect i remember you've got you've got your is it a limb the limb yeah, drum limb machine drum. yeah yeah I remember we used to play around with that for, for ages and just like get this like cool mad little beat and then yeah it's just like so simple those little things and then they just spiral but also if you remember although i do tell the story to my students occasionally i mean the the great thing of getting a vocal and if you remember when you know we did some of those vocals and it was the very very first thing that you spoke you know to try and get that that first sound of the wakening voice oh, um, really? and and do you remember the time where do you remember the time where the oh, i think i know what you're going to say yeah Go well <laughs> so for the uh i you know this is a good example very expensive mics <laughs> when you turn them off you put a shield on them to <laughs> protect them from the damp overnight or the dust and uh, Natalie was staying with me and we decided to do the record in the morning, very early on, before we had a coffee or breakfast. And this is when we were in London. We were, yeah. And I put the fader up. I put the fader up and I thought, oh, God, it sounds terrible. <laughs> really sound, doesn't sound very good. And of course, I'd forgotten that I put the, um, the, the screen on it. And Natalie had also well, that, started singing. Well, I'm not just like and then you completely said... <laughs> inexperienced at this point. I didn't even realise. <laughs> and then you said, oh, what's this thing? on it and then as we pulled that off suddenly the beautiful natalie mccall vocal sound appeared so yes so i must well, remember to take them off i was like oh i, I don't even realize that there's a cover on that microphone how but, inexperienced but, i was at that point so but yeah. the principle of but the principle of that sound is so you mentioned earlier that i produced the beach boys which i did but before i produced the beach boys i did many many sessions with bruce johnson who's a member of the beach boys yeah and bruce johnson when he lived in california was very very good friends with captain and Tennille and very good friends with the carpenters and they actually did live literally next door to him and he t- told me stories that when the carpenters would go to the studio to do the vocal tracks Karen would leave very, very early in the morning, before coffee, before breakfast, and sometimes the very first... She wouldn't even speak in the car, and the first moment <laughs> she opened her voice was on mic. And I remember him telling me that story, and I thought, that's a great idea, because that croaky opening voice is actually, particularly when you're not having to sing out, is a really lovely yeah. sound. And you only get it for 15, 20 minutes, and then once your voice is open, it's gone. Yeah. And that was the thing that we tried to... And I, if I remember... 
Is it Black Sun? The first four lines of that first opening verse very are the low. very first time. Yeah, are the very yeah. first time that you you mentioned anything, and I think we captured that. And I think that's really important with with um, recordings. Is capturing a moment. We had it the other day on a track we were doing. So I've got some uh, smaller guitar amps that I use when we just run the track through, just just because they're very quick and easy. And I hadn't realised, but the jack plug. Um, it's a it's a semi-professional jack plug and of course not designed for professional use and it had actually broken and I was listening to the sound as we were running the track through and I thought wow that's a really interesting sound it kind of sounds like T-Rex you know like Rider White Swan type of sound really thin and wispy luckily I recorded it and um then I went out to the studio and realised that the jack plug had broken. And, of course, when I fixed it, the sound had, was... But luckily I got it. And I remember yeah. a long time ago, John Moss from Culture Club, the drummer in Culture Club, I remember we were doing an interview with Peter Powell and we were all in the studio together. And Peter said to John, what's the best thing about working with Steve? And he said, he always puts the machine into record. <laughs> and that's a really, really Press important don't thing. Forget. Don't miss, don't, don't miss, miss that it, yeah. moment because that moment is sometimes irreplaceable. The the lead vocal on "Do You Really Want to Hurt Me" is one take from stop really? to finish. One take. Wow, God, he's good, isn't he? One of the yeah, but <laughs> well, you know, you've sung with him. You've, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, you see, there's another example of blend. You know, when we did that that performance in uh, St George's Hall, the blend that you and Mary had. <sighs> Me and just... yeah, that was really fun. That was a, so that just for anyone who doesn't know about that event, that was a, a Liverpool international music event that that you curated a few years back, and mm. it was an amazing event. And it was um, called Assembly Point Sessions. It was a selection of bands, yeah, yeah, yeah. combination of bands: Bernard Butler, Boy George, Holly Cook. Level 42, me. Charlatans. The Charlatans, very up with so but many. But what great moments, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but for me, a couple of the great moments were Tim Burgess singing with Boy George doing Satellite of Love. Yeah. But for me, what I mentioned about the blend is the sound of reggae backing vocals. Now, I'm very fortunate I have produced Ziggy Marley and I went to Jamaica and I've stood next to Rita Marley and I've heard her voice. And it's a particular, you know, we were talking about vocal tone. Well, you and Mary... Just Mary Epworth absolutely nailed those harmonies. So when Holly Cook did her lead vocal, and bearing in mind her records got absolutely authentic, yeah, lo loads on it. You know, it's got the loads of back and forth. Yeah, you two, you two nailed it. Absolutely nailed the sound. It sounded so good. Oh, it was loads of fun. Love, I love back and vocals. It's yeah. it's a different, as you say, with blend. It's completely di a different skill. And when when I first started doing them, and I was like, oh god, I'm really bad at this. <laughs> used to sing in lead vocals but then you just get used to like stepping back and the stepping back is very it's a very nice feeling you're just like settling yeah. in you're fortunate that you've got quite a wide range which again means that you can do the both the low harmonies and the high harmonies and again you know multi-tracking your voice is a particularly pleasant sound yeah well you got you got to get it right yeah every take get the same rhythm and stuff um talking about record production so i know that recently you composed the um score for hyper brawl tournament which is a video game yeah it's kind coming out very soon it's on apple arcade um currently and then it's going to be on all of the other things uh, uh, at some point in october it's literally ready to go and, great but i'm really really pleased with the um way the the soundtrack is doing now you just mentioned earlier about the lindrum so when i got the gig to do that so you and i love drive 
the film Drive and we love the soundtrack to that. And the game is set in this sort of similar, this kind of 80s dystopian world. And when I was first commissioned to do the game, which is quite a while ago now, um, one of the first few ideas that the games developer wanted was the again thinking of sound not 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 song or melody or any instruments but just the sound of certain things they said to me oh i really like the sound of that or i really like the sound of that what is that and on one particular <laughs> thing it was the classic lindrum sound yes. and i said well to to my ear that sounds to me like a lindrum let me knock you up a demo and i knocked up a demo and i used the, my lindrum on it and when they heard the demo they went oh my god it's perfect you got the gig because they because yeah. they then oh, knew that i understood what sounds yeah. make certain things and i think with a game it's really 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 important yeah. and although i've never done a game before i've done film scores and i mean there's things that are the same and things that are different i think the main difference on a game is that you don't know how long anyone's going to be on a particular section. So the yeah. music has to be able to transition from section A, B, C in a way that is enjoyable to the listener. So that's yeah. that's a technical achievement rather than even a, a musical thing. But it is definitely a sonic achievement because you've got to have things that make the end of a section rise or feel like it's going into another bit but not be disappointing when the next section comes in, you know. Um, and then what we've ended up doing, which is which I'm so excited about, is we've done a soundtrack version because it's very trendy at the moment for games to have what's yeah. called the original soundtrack. So I've oh, extended cool, everything, yeah. done 12-inch mixes, and so that's coming out as well. So I'm really excited about that. Wow. Because yeah. I suppose creating a record or producing a record and then creating a score for like a film tv or video game i guess that the end product is basically the same because you are effectively creating a piece of music but the the process is different like how is that different like you touched on it there but mm. just interested in how you would even begin to approach that well with film and television i think so with the television stuff the turnaround is really fast so what you tend to do with television particularly episodic television is that you uh they tend to have half a dozen directors on different episodes so you'll meet with director one and then he'll go or she will say okay here's what we've got Sometimes you'll go to the set because they need it so far ahead they haven't even shot anything. For example, when I did uh, She-Wolf of London, I would go to the set with director X while director Y was on set filming another episode just to get a sense of how it is. And then you get a rough cut and then you'll sit down with the producer of the film and the producer will say, OK, I hear this here, I hear something here, I hear something here. What do you think? Or, or there's a particularly important scene coming here, we really need this, this and this. So, so you kind of have a, a wish list of what works and then you've got to think of ideas. Now, with episodic television, generally you have a bunch of tunes that fit different characters. So it's a way of rearranging yeah. those... Is it like, like motifs yeah. Yeah, so, that, are, that are attached? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and obviously you might have a goodie, baddie or, you know, da na na you know, all that kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, but with a movie, it's really, really interesting. I think one of the things that was most interesting with when I did Mr Frost with Jeff Goldblum, is, I'll never forget this, um, they said, can you come to the set? And they were filming it in Paris and um, it was an old chateau that no one lived in, but it was, because it was quite a, 
uh, scary film. Um, essentially, Jeff Goldblum plays a character that's supposedly the devil and kills people and has no empathy with, with him. So we go on the set and the director says, Steve, I'd like to introduce you to Jeff Goldblum. And he goes, hey, so... Uh, wow. So he goes, so you're doing the music, are you? And I said, yes. Now, at this point, I had no idea... Did I- he want to be on no, it? No, but I had no idea <laughs> that Jeff Goldblum was the pianist that he is. Yeah. So he said to me, so what ideas have you got? And I said, well, Philip, the director, is very, very keen on... Um, he was very keen on the Cohen brothers and how they have sort of quite low piano things. And there was a broken piano in the, in the chateau. And I said, well, I'm working on this thing. And I played like a little thing on the piano. Now, you know, I'm not a great keyboard player. I can get by, but, I, you know, and I just played a bit in front of him. And then Jeff sat down and played. He said, oh, you mean something like this? <laughs> and played it like... Oh, wow. And I went... Maybe you should do the score because obviously yeah. we now all know he is. Oh, just play it. He is such an amazing yeah. pianist, and this is a broken piano, by the way, and he made it sound incredible. But what happened was, um, I did the score. Were, pre- were you pressing record? Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> did you have yeah. record on? So I get back to London. I start doing the score, and it's it's really good. And um, we end up with uh, they finish the film, and they end up with a scene that doesn't quite work. Uh, visually so they come up with an idea they say Steve could so the film had Alan Bates in it another really famous actor they said could Alan come to your studio and just do some kind of conversation as if he's on the phone and maybe an answer machine because they essentially they needed to not have him on shot but they, they needed some audio to bridge a scene which didn't quite work so Alan Bates came to, to my studio to record just like as if he was having a conversation with somebody on a phone um, and an answer machine so Philip the director came to think he said well what are you working on at the moment I said well we've got this scene and I'd spent literally ages on this scene and it was in the in those days it was also on tape so I'd like 48 faders with things on so he said well let me have a look so I ran the video and I started pushing the faders up now my desk in those days was quite long so I pushed like four faders up and he went oh I love it it's so good and I was like looking to my right and there's like there's like is the rest (laughs) but I didn't even bother to push the other faders up because he said I love it but there was like literally 40 more channels of things and he said no no I just love that so back to your first thing with film unlike records sometimes less is more yeah you know there's one there's one scene in one of my television things i did it's one note one single note but it is a great sound and it just gets kind of goes Rrr. but yeah. the moment the scene comes you don't need any more and then with the game same thing there's certain parts of the game where there's very minimal things it's just like maybe a drum beat with some weird percussion and then suddenly i'll bring in like a pulse bass or something and and then it builds to kind of a million tracks but that's the big difference between yeah. game, te- television and film versus a record. Because with a record, yeah. if it's a record with a vocal, you've got to still tell that story and you're going to build and build and build. With a film, you know, you've got the dialogue, you've got a lot of visual things that often, you know, make up for quite a lot of it. So you're really enhancing. But when the music is terrible, um, it does it does ruin a film. yeah. I suppose it's multi-sensory, isn't it? Because when you've got a record, it's just one thing. Mm. So really, it does have to be like a 3D experience with this one thing. But it's also what I like that's really good, though, is when I did one episode of the TV series, I sent the stuff in and the the producer phoned me and he said, Steve, 
I hate all of it. Oh, no. He said, it was one episode. Well, at least he's honest. And, and I was going so well up until that point. He said, but I'll tell you why I hate it. He said, you've looked at the character. He said, you just made it far too scary. Right. He said, I want it to be, I want it to be really sensual. Right. And, and I said, OK. So I kind of worked through the night, which I very rarely do. But I worked through the night and I kind of delivered him something else. But what was so great is that when I looked at it back, he was absolutely right. But because of the way that I did the music, the sound design people within the dubbing had really enhanced what I had given them. And this is where creative directors are so valuable. So you give them the music and yet they take it to another level by doing weird things to it. So, for example... Um, there was a drum machine starting the scene and I'd left it quite dry. But what they did was they lined it up, not in the place where I'd started the music, but they'd extended the front so that when the character opened the front door, they switched the light switch. And the first beat was on the light switch mm. and they put tons of echo on it. And the reason I was mentioning that is because, you know, you and I have just done this trailer for Sky. And one of the things I have to say is whoever mixed that has done such an incredible job yeah. because I gave I gave them stems, which is, you know, for those that don't know, the stems are the breakdowns of the of the track. So rather than a stereo mix of everything, they had a few separate things, including your voice separate, which also there's one scene where you see Jude Law's Jude Law's face and, and they've just added like so much reverb to your voice so that it extends yeah. into his dialogue. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So the, so the trailer you, you're talking about, that that's a track we did called Wondrous Place and it's a cover of a Billy Fury song for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and yes, yeah, so Sky picked it up for a new series that's out now on Now TV. And it's called The Third Day. It's featuring Jude Law, Paddy Considine, Naomi Harris, and loads of other people actually. It was really good to check it out if you, if you get a minute. But yeah, so the track that you produced is on the trailer. And I thought the trailer was really interesting because, uh, yeah, because of the way they use the stems, but because of the way they use the breath as like yeah. a rhythmic thing. I, th I thought they did a really good job. I thought it was really... No, I completely agree. ...really suited it. And that's the thing that I really, really love about that. And, I, and again, one of the great things that's happening with the game is the game engine so when you have it on xbox and all those things you supply the game as stems so that yeah. the sound engineers so when you're playing a game and you're listening on headphones things are moving all around the place and that means that as technology moves forward and, and more individual channels can be uh, stored on a device the enjoyment yeah. that you get is even greater but yeah I, I thought they did such a great job and it's interesting because it's the same team that produced that sky program that did the chernobyl which I thought was unbelievably I loved that. brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant. On so and I yeah. can kind of see why they liked our track so much because I, you know, if anyone hasn't seen Chernobyl, please watch it. But particularly the score, the score is incredible because the composer, what she did was um, Hilda, her name is she. She took the sound of turbines it's set obviously at chernobyl but those turbines make a particular noise and she took the sound of turbine turbines metal and sampled them and, and used that with cello and weird guitar sounds the kind of guitar sounds that we had used those sustaining looping weird freezing guitar sounds boss dd7 my delay <laughs> yes yeah those sorts of things are really creative and the chernobyl um soundtrack is fantastic but it but actually marries 
to your tone really, really well. So I can see why they chose it. Yeah. It's interesting because the, the, the programme itself doesn't actually have music like that in it, which no. is kind of odd. But Yeah. I, I, loved, I watched the first episode last night. It's very strange. It's, oh, you know what I was going to say? Isn't it so weird that um, it's almost like Wickerman-esque, isn't it? The the kind of feel of the series. Yes, it's Wickerman meets Don't Look Back. But with, with Wickerman, sorry, I remember when we were working in um, when you were based in London, and I was staying in in Parsons Green around the corner. And what did I watch before we did our sessions? I watched Wickerman. Yeah. How weird is that? Which is such a great film. I it's mean, a great I film. I'd never seen it, and I was just like, oh. I have to watch. I was like, what? Up at yeah. eight a.m., like watching like half an hour before I went. Um, oh, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about Wondrous um, Place a, a bit more. Just one more question: What what were your Go thoughts? Um, because the first time I played that, it was it was a live thing that I did for Threshold Festival. Because Billy Fiore Foundation had funded me for equipment while I was at Lipper to buy music equipment. So mm. that's the whole kind of thing that I picked his his song to play at this event. It was a Paul Denoya panel about his book Liverpool Wondrous Place, and the song is listed at the back of the book. Um, but then I wanted to uh, record it. I remember sending you the demo. So what were your thoughts when you heard the, the demo? Well, number one. Like many producers, you know, Billy Fury was one of the most incredible artists. That first record is... He was one of the very first artists to be allowed to to pretty much do his own thing. So if you've never checked it out, it's the one with the silver jacket. That album is... And you look at the timeline of when that album came out. This is before the Beatles. This is such an incredible album. And so I was a big, big fan growing up. I mean, I was only very young, but I really, really loved those records. And I was very familiar with the original because of Fairgrounds. So I have these real memories of um, going to Hampstead Fair and hearing, Oh, wondrous, please. You know, and, and also shaking all, shaking all over and Bebop Alula. Those three. Oh, I love Big like, uh, but those three songs are like burnt in yeah. my retina from when I was like maybe five or something like that. So you must have been thinking, what has she done to this no, amazing no, song? Beca- it sounds like, no, because sinister I, and horrible. No, no, not <laughs> not at all. Because of course, yeah. you know, as we had already proven with um, Nightcall, taking a song and literally reversing it is a brilliant thing to do, just completely. And I think it transpired. It was also exactly the same time that we were both getting these weird pedals. So it was like a meeting of uh, a brilliant moment. And I think that uh, it was a great choice because it is a a bit of an obscure song. And it's one of those songs that of Billy Fury's catalogue that doesn't really get played that much. You know, some of the other records get played. I find that so strange because it's great. Great song. Yeah, but but I you know for those that don't know his back catalogue, you know, listen to you know the back catalogue. It's it's unbelievably clever. And bearing in mind, this is at the same time as Joe Meek. They didn't have multi-track recording as we have it today. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so, so I was very familiar with it, yeah. and I'm extremely thrilled that that Sky has given us a kind of shop window because I think it it was such a great track. It was kind of one of the last things we did together. And I think it's so great. It's a real one-off thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And Because, in fact, it transitioned me coming up here because we did some of the vocals here. Yeah. We did some of the track in London and we finished it off here. And I think it was the very, very first 
mix that I did in the yeah, studio. I remember that, yeah. For for me that yeah. that song, what what I liked most about it, which I wanted to bring out in the version, was um the just the lyrics I think are so creepy mm-hmm. <laughs> and very like obsessive in a way. Mm. No, and that's obviously what the that's obviously what the producers of of Third Day have have found it resonates with yeah, them in a resonated. way that yeah yeah no it's so it's so interesting yeah I, I, ju- I just want to go back to what you were saying about um doing the video game and uh someone who who is not necessarily a musician but has still an artistic uh vision about the show or the game um it's just interesting hearing different people's opinions like you know it's too sinister i want it more sensual like it's so interesting that they would respond like that and they're they're not a musician they don't really know Mm. how to communicate it other than that i think that's so interesting like working with different people in different mediums and how they communicate and it's all it all comes together but i think you 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 mentioned this earlier that i think we're all drawn to certain aspects of of a song or a sound that 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 does affect us in a certain way and that's the that's everyone we're an all, all of us are an audience yeah the difference between professionals that do it for a living is that we hopefully understand some of the ingredients that go into making that and so maybe we can do it more regularly and it isn't just complete like every day yeah. yeah yeah i mean you know if you did it every day of course but but you know you don't get it right every time but you get it consistently more right than wrong yes um, I, I'm just aware that we've got a few gearheads w- watching this. I've just seen people people joining. So I will ask, this is one of my questions. It's a fun question. What is your favourite piece of gear and why? Um, I think it depends on the session, but I think, as often I say to students, having a good microphone is really important because a good microphone, you can capture the thing. And often that is the first element of sound, isn't it? The the, the microphone captures yeah. the very, very first thing. So in terms of home recording and everything, just get the best microphone that you possibly can afford. And there's some great choices out there because that will enable you to capture things in a great... It's like having a great camera. You know, everyone takes pictures in the fo- in their phone, but when you see one on a on a proper camera, it looks a lot better. Um, so that's I think microphones are really important always. Um, but I think with gear, it varies from from month to month. But at the moment, there's so many great strides forward in some of the software. Although that's not necessarily a physical thing, it really is a tool that you can use. Yeah, I'd say but- that's still gear. Like a but, plug-in but I or, think, you know... Yeah, yeah. But, but guitar pedals, synthesizers, you know, you get a great synth sound. You know, you can, you know, if I go over here and you sit, you know, fiddling with something on here, you know, oh, wow. you suddenly... No, but the point is, is, you know, like you can get a really great guitar tone that you love, you can get, you know, hours and hours disappear while you just get a sound. Yeah. And it can be something that really touches your soul. And then you can write a song on it. I've written several songs, which I've done with Stephen, where Stephen Lang stuff, where we've I've had just a, a sound or a thing, you know, like a bit. And I said to him, "I love this bit. Is it a bit?" And he went, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a let's." And then he'll then he'll kind of come up with a little guitar motif or something. But we start with something that can be really, really yeah. very small. That's so cool. Yeah, gear is important. Finding one thing that, that just cracks it but open, But I, can't, I really. can't, yeah, 
I can't say one specific thing. You know, it's lots of different things, and it depends on the mood of, of what I'm doing. You know, yeah, too much pressure. No, it's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, another fun question: What was it like winning a Grammy? Uh, well, it was it was an odd one because I didn't know that I'd won it. Um, <laughs> Because I didn't go to the show. Uh, that's why I don't have the statue. I've got the certificate because I got a call from the Grammy people and they said, we're, we're just checking your address to send the, the Grammy. And I went, what? Yeah. And they what? said, yeah, yeah. So, so it was for Denise Williams and the album was Water Under the Bridge. So it was one of those odd things. You know, it was a, a strange time. I, I didn't know until afterwards um and in those days it wasn't televised in the uk like it is now so i just didn't know until they phoned me so i have it you've seen it on my wall i have the thing on my wall but uh, i don't actually have the statue whereas i do have my brit award but what's really weird is that the year that i won my brit award because cd was a new thing it's a cd in a plastic thing it's not the statue they changed it oh, for one no. year so so i don't have the statue <laughs> you should write it's to them like a, yeah yeah <laughs> but i think i think the most recent awards which is only last year uh, the radio ones i love those awards because they look like old radio mics so i love those oh so. nice a Grammy yeah. is great to have, and I've worked not. I've, so I've won one Grammy for me personally, but many of the bands I've worked with have won Grammys uh, for, yeah. you know, because the way that Grammys work is, you know, the band can win a load of Grammys, but not necessarily the producer. But that particular one w w was for me. But Culture Club yeah. have had them, and, and many bands have had them that I've worked with. So it's it's great to 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 have it. I think the Brit yeah. Award is fun because the Brit Award was presented to me by Sir George Martin, which was fantastic. So, wow. and as you know, he was one of my heroes. So to be presented with my Brit Award by Sir George Martin was uh, lovely. Awesome. What have you got coming up that's exciting? Well, um, we're currently recording the Hush Tones album, currently. Um, so that's going really, really well. We've done all the backing tracks and most of the guitars. We're just in the last throes of uh, the next stage. So uh, that's what I'm currently recording. We've done a covers EP, which is going to come out soon. And there's, there's a couple of crackers on it, really just as a stopgap, because as I mentioned, we did lockdown rehearsals. So we kind of worked out some ideas and thought why don't we just do a couple of covers and then we can put that out which we'll put out in a in a couple of weeks time uh and then we'll ha be ready with the album but the album's sounding absolutely fantastic so i'm very excited by that uh the game the trailer launches in a few days i just did a, a trailer a couple of days ago for that so like a new piece of music for, for the trailer which is very exciting i think people of your age will love the trailer i'm not giving anything away i'm going to check it out that's hyperball tournament isn't it yes but there's a there's a trailer for it and right. the, the graphics are so amazing cool so that that goes live in a in, i can't remember exactly in a few you know soon very soon um okay so, yeah, and then continuing on with uh, everything, you know, just trying to keep busy. I mean, for me, I find a very good sense of well-being by coming to the studio. After all, the studio for me is my most creative environment. I'm most relaxed in a studio. I've spent my entire life in recording studios. I, I, I know nothing else. So for me, they're very, very inspirational. They're not intimidating. And I find it very creative and I think it's really, really good for your well-being. You know, if I come away one day and I haven't actually really written anything or, or done anything, but I've got a great bass sample or whatever, that's a good day. You know, I, I can enjoy that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's important to just fiddle around and potter around and you're still having fun. Hopefully you're writing lots of new, new tunes. 
I have been, yeah. I've got, um, yeah, I've got pulled together a few bits and bobs. It's a range, really, um, of my own stuff and then other, like, people's stuff and, like, different projects. But it's all been really good. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird time, but hopefully, like, I can do something with what I've written. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve, and have a great evening, and um, see you soon. All right, bye-bye then. <laughs> bye. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe and follow to this podcast. I'm Natalie McCool and you can find me and my music on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and also on my website, nataliemccool.co.uk. Thanks! Thank you